We move from the Gospel of Matthew to the Gospel of Mark this morning. From the longest Gospel with 28 chapters to the shortest with only 16. We saw that there are four Gospels. Gospel means good news. I mean, what do you, what do you entitle a book that describes the man who came saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, for He's anointed me to preach good news. You name the book, Good News. So it's good news by Matthew, good news by Mark, good news by Luke, good news by John. Today's the tenth book of the Bible that we're taking. We took eight from the Old Testament to start off. Now we're moved into the New Testament. And uh, we looked at Matthew last week and Mark this morning. We saw that each writer of the good news story of Jesus has his own perspective. But why four? Well, to watch a video with one camera angle is a little boring. Two is good. Three, you can make it really good. Four covers the subject nicely. These are four camera angles all describing from their perspective the life of Christ. Each are writing to a particular audience. We saw last week that Matthew was writing to the Jews. How good of God to break 400 years of silence by speaking to the people of Israel primarily. Now we move from Matthew's Gospel written primarily for the Jews to Mark's Gospel written primarily to the Romans. Each of the four camera angles describe a different facet of the singular life of Christ. He was a multifaceted individual. Much like a multifaceted jewel. Some jewels, when you look from one angle, you can see red reflected. In another angle, you can see a deep purple. Well, from Matthew's angle, he saw Jesus primarily as Christ the King. After all, the Jews were looking for a messianic king. And so from the beginning of his gospel to the end, it's all Christ the King. Now, in saying that, let's understand that this is a king unlike any other. Because this is a king who also took children in his arms. He touched lepers. He allowed women who were hemorrhaging to touch him. And he died on a cruel cross, voluntarily. Who ever heard of such a king? So, He was described by Matthew as a king who serves. Now we come to Mark's gospel. And we see a servant. If you're going to memorize one verse in the gospel of Mark, we would recommend chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus describing himself. He says, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give His life as a ransom for many. We find in Mark's Gospel no genealogy. Why? Because he's describing a servant. And who cares about a servant's genealogy? There's no visit of wise men because what kings would visit a servant? There's no clashing with Herod as there was in Matthew's Gospel because, again, who would get upset about a servant being born? So the first 30 years of Jesus' life are completely omitted by Mark's Gospel. Not that they didn't happen, but they're irrelevant to the way he's telling the story. He's not putting a spin on it. He's simply letting the camera roll from his camera angle and he's capturing this same Jesus, but from his perspective. And we're going to see through this gospel all the ways that Jesus served. It's interesting, there's no Sermon on the Mount as there was in Matthew and as we will see there is in Luke. Why? Because the Romans were of the philosophy, talk is cheap, we want to see action. And action they get in Mark's Gospel. There's so much action that you almost get out of breath. It's one action after another. Fifteen parables in Matthew, only four in Mark. But there are twenty miracles because he's a man of action. The word immediately is used forty times in the sixteen chapters. And the word and, he did this and, he did this and he did, and he did, and over thirteen hundred times. You almost get out of breath. If you, if you look close enough, you can see Jesus' forehead is glistening with perspiration because he's just going from one thing to another. End this, end this. Now, don't go home and spend the day circling all the times you come across and in your Bible, in, the, in Mark's Gospel. You, you'll waste your time. Just trust me. But they're all not translated. A bunch of them have periods. Because in our language, you don't have these huge run-on sentences like you can in Greek. So there's a lot more ands than even got translated. It wouldn't make for good English to translate all the ands that there are. But it's one after another after another. All this is going on. But while he's shown as servant, you never are allowed by Mark to miss the fact that he's a servant who has authority. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. His authority is first seen as he begins his ministry, verse 15, by saying the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. When he says repent, he is taking authority over individual lives and their destiny. And the next thing we see is he calls Simon and Andrew to come leave their fishing nets and follow him. He's a man of action, calling for action, and he's exerting authority even though he's a servant. Then he delivers someone of an evil spirit in the synagogue, and everyone is amazed not at the fact that he's a servant. They're amazed at the fact that he has authority. And then he heals Simon's mother-in-law. Any smart man knows you've got to take care of uh, your colleagues' wives and their mother and 
your mother-in-law. It's a good idea. Jesus was no dummy. He knew. But it was God's assignment for him to heal Peter's mother-in-law. So he takes authority over illness and over physical bodies. Then he takes authority over himself. Verse 35, when he rises early, long before daybreak, and he goes out to a quiet place just by himself and the Father so that he can spend time in prayer. Who knows? He may have been out there singing, Where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say. What you pray, I'll pray. Kind of have a feeling. We weren't the first ones to sing that this morning. Then he heals the guy with leprosy. Again, he takes authority. So in Matthew, yes, he's a king, but he's a king who serves. And in Mark, yes, he's a servant, but he's a servant who has authority. And how do we know Mark wrote this? Well, as we've said, and we'll say it again before we're done, none of the Gospels mention the name of the author. But at the day this was written, authors didn't put their names on things the way they do today because there were no publishing houses. It was word of mouth. It was past. Hey, here's something Mark wrote. Wow. This needs to be read as we gather in worship. Wow. Oh, this needs to be shared with others. Read what Mark wrote. Now, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 15, you you find um, the first streaker in the Bible. This is a a little unusual. Um, some, Some preachers, I'm sure, would avoid this, but not me. Where angels fear to tread. Verse, uh, it's chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Oh my. That's a rough one. You who teach middle school, you may want to skim over this one. Well, why is that in Mark's Gospel and not in any other Gospel? Why do you think? It was probably sweet little Marky boy. Little John Mark was getting a little too close. And they tried to grab him. And who else would tell the story? Hardly worth including... Except to the guy who was there and felt a little underdressed. But Mark, Mark, who is the relative of Barnabas, whose mother was Mary, in whose home The disciples gathered for prayer when Peter and John were in prison. Possibly the same Mother Mary who offered her home to Jesus 
for the Passover meal and who offered the same home for the upper room prayer meeting in Acts 1 and 2. Possibly the very same. He was an upper room disciple around the edges. He had observed. He's one of two gospel writers who were not disciples. The first and last, Matthew John, were disciples. The two middle were not. Mark and Luke. But they were affiliate disciples. They were around. It was Barnabas who took a liking for young Mark. It was Paul who said, no way, I'm not traveling with him. He's not coming on my missionary tour. And Barnabas and Saul had a had a falling out. But Barnabas took him and groomed him and discipled him. And then he became very useful to Paul later on. And several times Paul said, John Mark, who is very helpful to me. Peter probably led him to Christ because in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to Mark, my son. So he's led to Christ by Peter. Highly likely that he was this one who was there the night Jesus was betrayed, who was affiliated with all these things whose mother let them pray and have the Passover meal in her house, who was probably somewhere in proximity when Pentecost came. We know He was there when they were all praying, when Peter was miraculously released from prison. This same Mark is now writing this story. And he's telling the story from his perspective about this one Jesus whom he had affiliation and who had leaned in to hear story after story, who had traveled with Christ and seen many of the miracles and had been there in proximity. No, and when Jesus is captured in the film bank of Mark, the pieces that Mark pulls out to edit in to his film, his documentary, with the fragments from his memory bank, he elevates Jesus the servant. Very few quotes from Scripture, unlike Matthew, because Romans are not looking for messianic fulfillment in Jesus from Old Testament prophecies the way the Jews were. No, Mark presents Jesus as a man who did come to the Jews, but also for all people who came to serve all kinds of people. 
and who taught a leadership and demonstrated a leadership that would forever turn normal leadership principles upside down. When he heard the disciples discussing who is the greatest disciple? And they're elbowing each other. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers among those Roman Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become the slave of all. The word slave of all described not only Jesus' followers, but the life that He demonstrates. And as Jesus demonstrates, He then says, I am exhibit A, for I did not come to serve, to, to be served. But I, the Son of Man, have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, follow this. The word serve there, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. The Greek word is deacon. Some of you are elected in our church to serve as deacons. Or the women, the female counterpart, deaconesses. Here is your verse. Jesus said, I came not to be deaconed, but I came to deacon. I came to serve. I came to serve those who are in bondage to proclaim freedom for them and to lead them out of their bondage into freedom. I came to pour my love into those who have been rejected their whole lives, the outcast, and to lift them up. I came to redeem lives that don't have a prayer in the world. Those are the ones I've come for. And he says in Mark, as Mark's pulling out of his film bank, that moment when Jesus said, for the healthy people don't need a doctor. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What a picture of the servant, the deacon, Jesus. Forever inverting true kingdom leadership. Not one who was afraid to take authority because he frequently did and everyone was amazed at his authority. But the manner in which he did it was always out of service. It was never out of domination. It was never out of manipulation. It was never out of intimidation. It was never out of control. 
And when he gave the ministry over to his followers, chapter 16, there's very little contained in Mark on the resurrection. Now, the resurrection happened, but if in fact, as it's most likely, our Bibles should end with verse 8. The earliest manuscripts that we have end with verse 8. We do not see the risen Christ in Mark's Gospel. We hear an angel testifying. We hear the report of the women, but we don't see Him like we do in the other Gospels. And even if you include verse 9 on, which is most likely accurate, but should probably not be considered part of God's inerrant Word, even if we include this, nowhere do we find the teaching about Jesus before He ascended into heaven saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Well, Matthew included that. Jesus did say it, but He included it because He's showing Christ the King. Mark didn't because he's showing Christ the servant. It's not that he didn't say it, but it's not included here because it doesn't match his theme, his angle. No, what we find here is when Jesus rises, if we go on to verse 9, he appears to Mary from whom he had driven out seven demons. What a picture. What an amazing thing that Jesus would take time in all of His many resurrection appearances to, to show Himself to Mary, the one who was delivered of seven demons. She went weeping for joy, telling how Jesus was alive. Then He appears again. And again, and when Jesus speaks now, He includes the whole Roman world. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. You see, the servant is now speaking to the servants, saying, as I came to preach good news, now you go to preach good news. And go to the entire Roman world. And a few other things, but then at the end of verse 18. They will place their hands on the sick. And they will get well. Now listen. 19. The Lord Jesus spoke to them. He was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. You see, this very one who humbled himself, is now exalted. The one who was in very nature God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself a servant, clothed in human form, and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, that same Jesus has now been exalted 
to the highest place. The one who came as a servant has now been exalted with full authority. Now, verse 20, the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them. You might want to circle that word with. I love the fact that the, the, the way this is worded is what's actually happening even today through us. The Lord works with us. Where you send, I go. What you say, I say. What you pray, I pray. And when we do, He works with us and confirms His Word by the signs that accompany it. It's good news. Is it good news to you? What about Jesus in Mark is good news for you? Have you ever felt like that outcast and Jesus came and loved you? Have you ever felt rejected, but God welcomed you and accepted you? Have you ever felt bound up, but Jesus set you free? Have you ever been sick and God healed you? And is church and Christianity something that's just here to serve you? Then you don't understand Jesus. He said that's not what this is all about. It's not how can all this serve me. It's becoming a follower of the deacon who washed feet, who touched lepers, who reached down to the least and the little ones and the hurting ones. Sherry and I leave this evening to go to the Middle East. This spring, I'm on assignment number one here in our base camp. But I'm also going outside of here to four very hurting places. To the Arab world in Jordan. To Iraq to serve war-torn, battle-fatigued pastors and wives. In six weeks, I'm going to Colombia, South America, ravaged by drug lords. 500 churches are so desperate, they all have invited the College of Prayer to come to war-torn, drug lord, war-torn Colombia. There's not a family that doesn't have somebody that's been killed. Colombia. And then to Montenegro. In the whole country of Montenegro, about 800,000 people, there's 120 known Christians. There's only three churches. Those three churches have all gotten together and invited the College of Prayer to come. Because they said, Campus Crusade has come, all kinds of other groups have come, but nothing's working. We need God. We need to learn to pray. We only have one daughter, Andrea. 
I'm very fond of Andrea. She got married right here to a great guy, Josh. Josh goes three to five times a year to Montenegro. God's put it on their church to go to Montenegro and reach Montenegro. And he's the one that is our connection to go to Montenegro with him. Last year, our granddaughter, Lily, was being put into bed and prayers at night with her daddy, Josh, the night before he was leaving for Montenegro. And she says, Daddy, why do you have to go again? Why do you have to leave us? And he said, well, honey, where I'm going, there's only a hundred or so Christians in the whole country of almost a million people. Daddy, do you mean that there's men and women and children who don't know Jesus? Yes, Lily, and they've never even heard of Jesus. Never heard of Jesus well, you better hurry up and go then. And you better do a good job. Where you go, I'll go. Where you send, I will go. We're not in charge of our own lives. Jesus taught the discipleship. If anyone in the whole Roman world and beyond would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What difference is that gospel making in your life today? If you don't know Jesus, would you trust Jesus today? And if you haven't been under His authority in a way that has brought an upheaval, an uncomfortable upheaval. Sometimes we say, it rocked my world. Well, that's fine. But really, God does rock our world. But he, we live in an upside-down world. God wants to get us right-side up. But until we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, we're living upside-down lives. If we think this whole thing is to serve us, we've got it all wrong. If Jesus didn't come to be served, He sure isn't going to design a life where we are just served and waited on. Oh, may God work in us the reality of the Gospel that is alive here in our base camp, here in northeast Atlanta, where every day is a new adventure, where we're on assignment in our, with our neighbors, with the next generation, and with the nations.